Thank you, Lord, that when your word is read and taught, that you promise to accomplish the purposes that you intend. And so, Lord, I take great comfort in that now. I ask, Lord, that you would attend to us by your spirit and that you would help us to see the great love of Christ. It's in his name I pray. Amen. All right, so um, as, I was reaching, as I was researching for this sermon, I came across an article um, that was actually originally inspired by a Reddit post. And the Reddit post had just posed a simple question to the forum, and it asked, what does your crazy neighbor do in order to earn the right to be labeled your crazy neighbor? So immediately I was very intrigued, right? Um, and the article went on to compile the answers to this post from Reddit and put pictures to them and rank them. So I want to share a few of my favorites here. Um, some were a little bit more harmless than others. One of the top ones, um, the responder said, he comes over and he eats my flowers. And in his defense, he, he walked over, he introduced himself to me and my wife when we moved in the house and let us know that he'd been doing this for years before we moved in the house. And so they let us know that he's actually a great neighbor and he's really chill about it. Eats his flowers, all right? And then some, some are really not so great, right? Um, there was another responder who talked about how their, um, their neighbor was this woman who had a lot of cats. And so this woman, she would hold disco parties for her cats in her backyard every few days, which in itself is kind of crazy. But she would do this at 2 a.m. And she would have loud music and dancing. It was very difficult for their sleep schedule. And then finally, my personal favorite, um, one responder described how they once lived in an apartment complex, and um, in the unit above them, there was an elderly woman. And this woman, um, she mostly kept to herself, and the couple below, they mostly kept to themselves. Each of these apartments had a wooden balcony. And so this man and his wife, after dinner, they would often like to go out on their balcony and enjoy some time together in the fresh air. But their neighbor above didn't like that so much. And so what she would do is she would go and take a Windex bottle and she would point it through the slats of her balcony. She would spray them with Windex and then run inside and refuse to answer the door. What's the point? People are crazy, right? <laughs> Pastor joke, closing prayer, you know. No. Uh, no, the point is this. Loving other people is hard, right? Um, we often don't make it easy to love each other. And so we come to a passage like this, and it can actually seem very difficult to us. Um, okay, so moving into, um, for those of you who like structure, um, I have just one point that I want us to look at tonight. Um, so that point is framed in a question, and it's, what is this love? Okay, so point one, what is this love? You know, it's my first sermon. I'm still working my way up here, so I haven't quite met the Presbyterian standard of three points. We're just going to stick with one point tonight. Point one, what is this love? I think in order to fully understand the context of Jesus' words here at the end of John 13, we, we need to see what's happening in the greater context of the Gospel of John. That's why I'm thankful for that our Gospel reading was um, the beginning of John 13. And John 13 through 17, many scholars refer to as Jesus' farewell discourse to his disciples. At the beginning of John 13, Jesus knows that his hour has come. It's time for him to depart to the Father. And so sensing this, 
in love for his disciples, he begins to prepare them for when he will no longer be with them. And what Jesus does, this is all taking place in the context of the Feast of Passover, which is an incredibly significant event in the life of the Israelites. As you may remember, God instituted the Feast of the Passover in Exodus 12 as a remembrance for when God delivered the people of Israel out of slavery in Egypt. So the disciples enter into this rented room where they were going to have this feast of the Passover. They likely enter and see this, this water basin to the side. And, and it, would, it would be customary for um, the guests to have their feet washed before this feast. However, um, what was utterly shocking is that Jesus would take off his outer garments and he would stoop down with a towel around his waist he would begin to wash the dirty feet of his disciples one by one. Now his disciples truly like, would have been utterly shocked by this because the act of washing the feet, though customary, was considered so low and humiliating that it actually would have been customary that not even Jewish slaves would be permitted to wash the feet of other Jewish people. They considered it too humiliating so they would have a foreigner come in and wash the feet of the guests that they would have at their feast. So Jesus finishes washing the feet of his disciples in this incredible act of sacrificial love and service. And then he says to them that if I, your Lord and teacher, do this, so also are you to wash the feet of one another. Jesus then is troubled in his spirit. He lets his disciples know that one of them is to betray him. His disciples all are understandably confused and scared, thinking it's, it's possibly them. And then Jesus sends Judas out into the night to go do what, what he is to do. And that's where we find ourselves at the beginning of verse 31 here, where Jesus says, Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him at once. So what we see here is this continuation of the theme in the farewell discourse. Jesus knows that this hour for him to be glorified, this hour for God to be glorified through him has come, right? So he's been speaking of this hour to his disciples, and now that hour has come. That's where we get uh, those first few verses. And then moving into 33, Jesus says, little children, yet a little while I am with you. You will seek me, and just as I said to the Jews, so now I also say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. Jesus is preparing his disciples that he is about to be apart from them. They will be sent out into the world, and he will no longer be with them. But what I don't want us to miss in verse 33 is that term that Jesus uses. He says, little children... And commentators would actually draw our attention to this because this is the only time in the Gospel of John that Jesus actually uses this phrase, little children. And the commentators would also say that we rightly hear this as a term of intense emotional attachment. In fact, it's, it's not an over-translation to hear, my dear children, right? Jesus is saying to his disciples, my dear children. And this expression of love and care for them we must also remember that Jesus knows all things, right? Jesus knows that even just another day later, his disciples will all abandon him. In Matthew 26, as he quotes from the Old Testament, he says, he'll strike the shepherd and all the sheep will scatter. Jesus knows that this is coming with his disciples. 
And yet still, he looks at them and he says, my dear children, yet a little while I'm with you. So Jesus is preparing them for this hour where he will be glorified. And then we move into the new commandment. And as Brian mentioned, mandi comes from the Latin term mandatum, which is, uh, means commandment. And it comes from this verse right here. A new commandment I give to you, that you are to love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this all people will know that you are my, my disciples, if you have love for one another. Now, we may rightly ask of this commandment, in what ways is this new? Right? This sounds so much like things that I have heard Jesus say throughout the Gospels up until this point. And in fact, if you have been reading along in the Daily Prayer Project this week, you would have read in Matthew 22, where Jesus answers to the Pharisees about the greatest commandment that we prayed through, that we are to love the Lord our God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and that the second is like it. We are to love our neighbors as ourselves. So that sounds just like this. How is this new? Well, commentators would show us that it comes in that phrase, just as I have loved you. Jesus is saying, I, Jesus, as I, Jesus, have loved you, I now am the standard for which you are to love one another, right? In this crazy love that he's just demonstrated in this culture-defying act of washing the feet of his disciples. You are to love like I love you, And yet it's not only that Jesus is now the new standard for this commandment to love one another, but also that we as his disciples are to reflect the love of God, this relationship between father and son. In fact, later on in this farewell discourse in John 17, Jesus prays for his disciples in what's known as the high priestly prayer. Jesus prays for his disciples who are there with him and also the disciples who are to come. And what Jesus prays for them is that they would experience unity and so reflect the love of the Father to the Son. So therefore, this commandment is new in multiple ways. We are to love as Jesus loved, and we are to reflect the love of the Father for the Son. And by this, the great privilege that we have as the disciples of Jesus, the watching world will know that we are followers of Jesus, that God will be glorified in this. So I want us to take a moment and just imagine what that would look like for us here in the 21st century in Fort Worth, Texas, right? What would it look like to live in a community so marked by rich love and sacrificial service for one another that people from completely different political backgrounds could find unity and they could find friendship and common ground in the gospel? Or what if people from completely different socioeconomic backgrounds, people whose families don't look anything like our families or who didn't experience the things that we experienced or didn't go to the school that we went to, but would still find friendship and love in the community of Jesus? to which the watching world would say, how is this possible? Why, are, why on earth would these people get together? To my middle and high school students, what would it look like for the love of Christ to so go forth into your school that it enabled you to be friends, even good friends, with someone who 
isn't on your football team or who doesn't share your interests at all. In fact, what would it look like for the love of Christ to enable you to be friends with someone who has absolutely nothing to offer you socially? To where your friends would say, what are you doing? Why, why are you friends with this person? Why, like, why do you guys hang out? And in this way, the gospel of our Lord Jesus would go forth. So how do we do this, right? Like, that all sounds great. Um, I want to suggest a few practical ways that we could even begin to do this in our community here at Trinity. The first is this. Find an opportunity to serve your, the, your church and also your physical neighbors. Maybe it looks like you uh, volunteer to help serve with Trinity Kids once a month or once every other month to help corral these kiddos that seem to multiply by the day here at our church. Or maybe it looks like inviting your physical neighbor into your home for dinner once a semester. Maybe those, that couple down the street that you know recently moved in and may not know anyone. Or maybe even to invite your crazy neighbor into your home to have dinner with you and your family that the love of Christ might go forth and be displayed to your children as well. So there's one way, find an opportunity to serve. Here's the second, make it a priority to actually meet someone new when you come to church. We hear it every week, right? So we finish the service and Brian says, take a moment, meet somebody you haven't met yet. I think if you're anything like me, what comes most naturally in that moment is thinking about, okay, what do I have to do? And I'll probably just talk to my friends since I'm sitting right here next to them and that's the easiest thing to do. What would it look like for us to actually go to that new face that we, seen, we saw and know that they don't have anyone to talk to right now? Or maybe even to go and introduce yourself to the person that you know has been going to this church for many years, like you, and you, you kind of feel like, maybe it's too late to introduce myself. We've kind of seen each other around. I, I don't know if I want to like mess with that. To push through the awkwardness and to introduce yourself and get to know them. So those are the first two ways. Find an opportunity to serve, meet someone new. Here is the third. Practice forgiving one another. Even in the church, we mess up all the time, right? We exclude people from our hangouts. We talk about people behind their backs in less than positive lights. Or maybe we actively say things that hurt other people. We need forgiveness. And we have the opportunity to love one another in practicing giving forgiveness freely and also receiving forgiveness. Now I know you might be sitting there and thinking, okay John, that sounds awesome, right? Like I'm just gonna go out and I'm going to introduce myself to every single person here. I'm gonna love every single person in my life perfectly just like Jesus and I'm never gonna mess up. That sounds really, really easy, thanks. Obviously, that's not the case, right? And sometimes it's really hard um, to even see past what's going on in your life. Maybe if you're really like me, it's easy to think only about yourself. Or maybe you say, John, I'm just trying my best. 
I'm caring for my kids from sunup to sundown who may or may not say thank you. Or I'm working 50, 60 hours for my family. I'm exhausted. What love do I have for other people? Or maybe you'd even say, I'm suffering. I'm experiencing loss. Or I'm just trying to get through the day. How am I supposed to love other people? In all these things, we need to remember that Jesus never calls us to anything that he does not equip us for. That this Jesus, who has just demonstrated his culture-defying sacrificial love for his disciples and washing their dirty feet, will also go on just 24 hours later in this ultimate act of love and sacrifice for his disciples, though God of the universe from eternity, who created all things, would subject himself to beatings, to wrongful judgment, to complete abandonment by all of his friends, and even death on a cross. Yes, this Jesus gives us the power to love others, right? By faith in Jesus, we receive his spirit. And that spirit comes to dwell within us that we might reflect the God that we are to reflect, right? That standard to love as Jesus loves, to reflect the relationship between the Father and the Son. Jesus gives us his spirit that dwells in us that we might be able to love one another. You see, the love is displayed not that we first loved Jesus, but that he first loved us. This is the love of Christ. Will you receive it? Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you uh, that you would show us your great love for us in Jesus. Thank you that Jesus' love moves towards us, that we would never expect a God to wash our feet. We would never expect a God to refer to us as his dear children, knowing that we would reject him, knowing that we would abandon him. Father, by your spirit, would you give us the ability to live out this new commandment? That by loving one another, the watching world may ask, how is this possible? And so the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ might go forth to our city and beyond. It's in the name of Jesus I pray, amen.